Section twenty one of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume four by James Boswell, Section twenty one. When I recalled to him his having said, as we sailed up Loch Lomond, that if he wore anything fine, it shall be very fine. I observed that all his thoughts were upon a great scale. Johnson, depend upon it, sir, every man will have as fine a thing as he can get, as a large diamond for his ring. Boswell, pardon me, sir, a man of a narrow mind will not think of it. A slight trinket will satisfy him. Nec supere quaeat majoris pondera gemai. Footnote. Charged with light summer rings, his fingers sweat, unable to support a gem of weight. Dryden. End of footnote. I told him I should send him some essays which I had written, which I hoped he would be so good as to read and pick out the good ones. Footnote. He had published a series of seventy essays under the title of the hypochondriac in the london magazine from seventeen seventy seven to seventeen eighty three end of footnote johnson nay no, sir send me only the good ones don't make me pick them i heard him once say though the proverb nullum numen abest si sit prudentia does not always prove true we may be certain of the converse of it nullum numen adest si sit imprudentia footnote the common reading however is nullum numen habes etc mrs piozzi records this saying but with a variation for says mr johnson though i do not quite agree with the proverb that nullum numen abest si sit prudentia yet we may very well say that nullum numen adest ni sit prudentia. End footnote. Once, when Mr. Seward was going to Bath and asked his commands, he said, Tell Dr. Harrington that I wish he would publish another volume of the Nugae Antiquae. It is a very pretty book. Footnote. Miss Burney mentions meeting Dr. Harrington at Bath in 1780. It is his son, she writes, who published those very curious remains of his ancestor, Sir John Harrington, under the title Nugae Antiquae, which my father and all of us were formerly so fond of. End of footnote. Mr. Seward seconded his wish and recommended to Dr. Harrington to dedicate it to Johnson and take for his motto what Catullus says to Cornelius Nepos. Namque tu solebas meas esse aliquid putare nugas. As a small proof of his kindliness and delicacy of feeling, the following circumstance may be mentioned. One evening, when we were in the street together and I told him I was going to sup at Mr. Beauclerc's, he said, I'll go with you. After having walked part of the way, seeming to recollect something, he suddenly stopped and said, Oh, I cannot go, but I do not love Beauclerc the less. 
on the frame of his portrait mr beauclerc had inscribed ingenium ingens inculto latet hoc sub corpore after mr beauclerc's death when it became mr langton's property he made the inscription be defaced johnson said complacently it was kind in you to take it off and then after a short pause added and not unkind in him to put it on he said how few of his friends houses would a man choose to be at when he is sick he mentioned one or two i recollect only thrales Footnote. he would not have been a troublesome patient anywhere for according to mrs piozzi he required less attendance sick or well than ever i saw any human creature End of footnote. he observed there is a wicked inclination in most people to suppose an old man decayed in his intellects if a young or middle-aged man when leaving a company does not recollect where he laid his hat it is nothing but if the same inattention is discovered in an old man people will shrug up their shoulders and say his memory is going Footnote. that natural jealousy which makes every man unwilling to allow much excellence in another always produces a disposition to believe that the mind grows old with the body and that he whom they are now forced to confess superior is hastening daily to a level with ourselves End footnote. when i once talked to him of some of the sayings which everybody repeats but nobody knows where to find such as cos deus fort perdere prius dementat he told me that he was once offered ten guineas to point out from whence semel in sanivimus omnes was taken he could not do it but many years afterwards met with it by chance in Ioannes baptista mantuanus footnote with the following elucidation of the saying quos deus it should rather be quem jupiter vult perdere prius dementat mr boswell was furnished by mr pitts perhaps no scrap of latin whatever has been more quoted than this it occasionally falls even from those who are scrupulous even to pedantry in their latinity and will not admit a word into their compositions which has not the sanction of the first age the word demento is of no authority either as a verb active or neuter after a long search for the purpose of deciding a bet some gentlemen of cambridge found it among the fragments of euripides in what edition i do not recollect where it is given as a translation of a greek iambic greek ou theos theli apolisoi opoprioi the above scrap was found in the handwriting of a suicide of fashion sir d o some years ago lying on the table of the room where he had destroyed himself the suicide was a man of classical acquirements he left no other paper behind him another of these 
proverbial sayings. Incidit in silan cupiens vitare caribdim. I, in a note on a passage in the Merchant of Venice, traced to its source. It occurs, with a slight variation, in the Alexandris of Philippe Gautier, a poet of the 13th century, which was printed at Lyon in 1558. Darius is the person addressed. Quo tendis inertem rex periture fugam, nescis hoi perite, nescis quem fugas, hostes incurus dum fugis hostem, incidis in silam cupiens vitare caribdim. A line not less frequently quoted was suggested for inquiry in a note on the rape of Lucrece. Solamen miseris socios habuse doloris. But the author of this verse has not, I believe, been discovered. Malone. The Greek iambic in the above note is not Greek. To a learned friend I owe the following note. The Quem Jupiter vult perdere, etc., is said to be a translation of a fragment of Euripides by Joshua Barnes. There is, I believe, no such fragment at all. In Barnes's Euripides is a fragment of Euripides with a note, which may explain the muddle of Boswell's correspondent. Autor de daemon handri posunacacaton non heplapse on which Barnes writes, Tale quid infranciados nostri, probably his uncompleted poem on Edward III, certe ille deorum abito ultricem cum vult extendere dextram dementat prius. Sir D. O. is perhaps Sir Danvers Osborne, whose death is recorded in the Gentleman's Magazine, 1753. Sir Danvers Osborne, Baronet, Governor of New York, soon after his arrival there in his garden. Solomon Miseris, etc., is imitated by Swift in his verses on Stella's birthday, 1726-7. The only comfort they propose to have companions in their woes. The note on Lucrece was, I conjecture, on line 1111, Grief Best is pleased with Grief's society. Faustus, tu quoque ut hic video non es ignaros amorum, Fortunatus, id commune malum semel insanivimus omnes. Baptistae mantuani carmelitae adolescentia so Bocorica, Ecloga Una, published 1498. Scaliger, says Johnson, complained that Mantuan's bucolics were received into schools and taught as classical. He was read, at least in some of the inferior schools of this kingdom, to the beginning of the present 18th century. End of footnote. I am very sorry that I did not take a note of an eloquent argument in which he maintained that the situation of the Prince of Wales was the happiest of any persons in the kingdom, even beyond that of the sovereign. 
I recollect only the enjoyment of hope, the high superiority of rank without the anxious cares of government, and a great degree of power, both from natural influence wisely used, and from the sanguine expectations of those who look forward to the chance of future favour. Sir Joshua Reynolds communicated to me the following particulars. Johnson thought the poems published as translations from Ossian had so little merit that he said, Sir, a man might write such stuff forever if he would abandon his mind to it. He said, A man should pass a part of his time with the laughers, by which means anything ridiculous or particular about him might be presented to his view and corrected. I observed he must have been a bold laugher who would have ventured to tell Dr. Johnson of any of his particularities. Footnote. I am happy, however, to mention a pleasing instance of his enduring with great gentleness to hear of one of his most striking particularities pointed out. Miss Hunter, a niece of his friend Christopher Smart, when a very young girl, struck by his extraordinary motions, said to him, Pray, Dr. Johnson, why do you make such strange gestures? From bad habit, he replied, do you, my dear, take care to guard against bad habits? This I was told by the young lady's brother at Margate, Boswell. Boswell had himself told Johnson of some of them, at least in writing. Johnson read in manuscript his Journal of a Tour to the Hebrides. Boswell says in a note on October the 12th, It is remarkable that Dr. Johnson should have read this account on some of his own peculiar habits without saying anything on the subject, which I hoped he would have done. End of footnote. Having observed the vain, ostentatious importance of many people in quoting the authority of dukes and lords as having been in their company, he said he went to the other extreme and did not mention his authority when he should have done it, had it not been that of a duke or a lord. Dr. Goldsmith said once to Dr. Johnson that he wished for some additional members to the literary club to give it an agreeable variety, for, said he, there can now be nothing new among us. We have travelled over one another's minds. Johnson seemed a little angry and said, Sir, you have not travelled over my mind, I promise you. Sir Joshua, however, thought Goldsmith right, observing that when people have lived a great deal together, they know what each of them will say on every subject. A new understanding, therefore, is desirable, because though it may only furnish the same sense upon a question which would have been furnished by those with whom we are accustomed to live, yet this sense will have a different colouring, and colouring is of much effect in everything else as well as in painting. Johnson used to say that he made it a constant rule to talk as well as he could, both as to sentiment and expression, by which means what had been originally effort became familiar and easy. 
Footnote. Johnson, after stating that some of Milton's manuscripts prove that in the early part of his life he wrote with much care, continues, such relics show how excellence is acquired. What we hope ever to do with ease, we must learn first to do with diligence. Lord Chesterfield had made the same rule as Johnson. I was, he writes, early convinced of the importance and powers of eloquence, and from that moment I applied myself to it. I resolved not to utter one word, even in common conversation, that should not be the most expressive and the most elegant that the language could supply me with for that purpose, by which means I have acquired such a certain degree of habitual eloquence that I must now really take some pains if I would express myself very inelegantly. End of footnote. The consequence of this, Sir Joshua observed, was that his common conversation in all companies was such as to secure him universal attention, as something above the usual colloquial style was expected. Footnote. Dr. Johnson, wrote Malone in 1783, is as correct and elegant in his common conversation as in his writings. He never seems to study either for thoughts or words. When first introduced, I was very young, yet he was as accurate in his conversation as if he had been talking to the first scholar in England. End of footnote. Yet though Johnson had this habit in company, when another mode was necessary in order to investigate truth, he could descend to a language intelligible to the meanest capacity. An instance of this was witnessed by Sir Joshua Reynolds when they were present at an examination of a little blagged boy by Mr. Saunders Welch, the late Westminster Justice Welch who imagined that he was exalting himself in Dr. Johnson's eyes by using big words, spoke in a manner that was utterly unintelligible to the boy. Dr. Johnson, perceiving it, addressed himself to the boy and changed the pompous phraseology into colloquial language. Sir Joshua Reynolds, who was much amused by this procedure, which seemed a kind of reversing of what might have been expected from the two men, took notice of it to Dr. Johnson as they walked away by themselves. Johnson said that it was continually the case, that he was always obliged to translate the justice's swelling diction, smiling, so that his meaning might be understood by the vulgar from whom information was to be obtained. Sir Joshua once observed to him, that he had talked above the capacity of some people with whom they had been in company together. No matter, sir, said Johnson. They consider it as a compliment to be talked to as if they were wiser than they are. So true is this, sir, that Baxter made it a rule in every sermon that he preached to say something that was above the capacity of his audience. Footnote. The justness of this remark is confirmed by the following story, for which I am indebted to Lord Elliot. A country parson, who was remarkable for quoting scraps of Latin in his sermons, having died, one of his parishioners was asked how he liked his successor. 
he is a very good preacher was his answer but no latiner boswell reynolds said that johnson always practised on every occasion the rule of speaking his best whether the person to whom he addressed himself was or was not capable of comprehending him if says he i am understood my labour is not lost if it is above their comprehension there is some gratification though it is the admiration of ignorance and he said those were the most sincere admirers and quoted baxter who made a rule never to preach a sermon without saying something which he knew was beyond the comprehension of his audience in order to inspire their admiration addison in the spectator tells of a preacher in a country town who outshone a more ignorant rival by quoting every now and then a latin sentence from one of the fathers the other finding his congregation mouldering every sunday and hearing at length what was the occasion of it resolved to give his parish a little latin in his turn but being unacquainted with any of the fathers he digested into his sermons the whole book of quigenus adding however such explications to it as he thought might be for the benefit of his people he afterwards entered upon as in presenti which he converted in the same manner to the use of his parishioners this in a very little time thickened his audience filled his church and routed his antagonist End of footnote. johnson's dexterity in retort when he seemed to be driven to an extremity by his adversary was very remarkable of his power in this respect our common friend mr wyndham of norfolk has been pleased to furnish me with an eminent instance however unfavourable to scotland he uniformly gave liberal praise to george buchanan as a writer in a conversation concerning the literary merits of the two countries in which buchanan was introduced a scotchman imagining that on this ground he should have an undoubted triumph over him exclaimed ah dr johnson what would you have said of buchanan had he been an englishman why sir said johnson after a little pause i should not have said of buchanan had he been an englishman what i will now say of him as a scotchman that he was the only man of genius his country ever produced and this brings to my recollection another instance of the same nature i once reminded him that when dr adam smith was expatiating on the beauty of glasgow he had cut him short by saying pray sir have you ever seen brentford and i took the liberty to add my dear sir surely that was shocking why then sir he replied you have never seen brentford though his usual phrase for conversation was talk Footnote. well said he we had good talk boswell yes sir you tossed and gored several persons End of footnote. 
yet he made a distinction for when he once told me that he dined the day before at a friend's house with a very pretty company and i asked him if there was good conversation he answered no sir we had talk enough but no conversation there was nothing discussed talking of the success of the scotch in london he imputed it in a considerable degree to their spirit of nationality you know sir said he that no scotchman publishes a book or has a play brought upon the stage but there are five hundred people ready to applaud him Footnote. dr j h burton says of hume no scotsman could write a book of respectable talent without calling forth his loud and warm elodiums wilkie was to be the homer blacklock the pindar and home the shakespeare or something still greater of his country End of footnote. he gave much praise to his friend dr burney's elegant and entertaining travels and told mr seward that he had them in his eye when writing his journey to the western islands of scotland such was his sensibility and so much was he affected by pathetic poetry that when he was reading dr beattie's hermit in my presence it brought tears into his eyes Footnote. boswell's son james says that he heard from his father that the passage which excited this strong emotion was the following tis night and the landscape is lovely no more i mourn but ye woodlands i mourn not for you for morn is approaching your charms to restore perfumed with fresh fragrance and glittering with dew nor yet for the ravage of winter i mourn kind nature the embryo blossom will save but when shall spring visit the mouldering urn or when shall it dawn on the night of the grave End of he disapproved much of mingling real facts with fiction on this account he censured a book entitled love and madness footnote horace walpole mentions this book at some length on march the thirteenth seventeen eighty he wrote yesterday was published an octavo pretending to contain the correspondence of hackman and miss ray that he murdered End of footnote. mr hoole told him that he was born in moorfields and had received part of his early instruction in grub street sir said johnson smiling you have been regularly educated having asked who his instructor was and mr hoole having answered my uncle sir who was a tailor johnson recollecting himself said sir i knew him we called him the metaphysical tailor he was of a club in old street with me and george psalmazar and some others but pray sir was he a good tailor footnote hawkins recording how johnson used to meet psalmazar at an alehouse says that johnson one day 
remarked on the human mind that it had a necessary tendency to improvement and that it would frequently anticipate instruction sir said a stranger that overheard him that i deny i am a tailor and have had many apprentices but never one that could make a coat till i had taken great pains in teaching him robert hall was influenced in his studies by his intimate association in mere childhood with a tailor one of his father's congregation who was an acute metaphysician end of footnote. mr hoole having answered that he believed he was too mathematical and used to draw squares and triangles on his shop-board so that he did not excel in the cut of a coat i am sorry for it said johnson for i would have every man to be master of his own business in pleasant reference to himself and mr hoole as brother authors he often said let you and i sir go together and eat a beefsteak in grub street footnote johnson had never been in grub street End of footnote. Sir William Chambers, that great architect, footnote, the Honourable Horace Walpole, late Earl of Orford, thus bears testimony to this gentleman's merit as a writer. Mr. Chambers' treatise on civil architecture is the most sensible book and the most exempt from prejudices that ever was written on that science. Preface to Anecdotes of Painting in England, Boswell chambers was the architect of somerset house and a footnote whose works show a sublimity of genius and who is esteemed by all who know him for his social hospitable and generous qualities submitted the manuscript of his chinese architecture to dr johnson's perusal johnson was much pleased with it and said it wants no addition nor correction but a few lines of introduction which he furnished and sir william adopted footnote the introductory lines are these it is difficult to avoid praising too little or too much the boundless panegyrics which have been lavished upon the chinese learning policy and arts show with what power novelty attracts regard and how naturally esteem swells into admiration i am far from desiring to be numbered among the exaggerators of chinese excellence i consider them as great or wise only in comparison with the nations that surround them and have no intention to place them in competition either with the ancients or with the moderns of this part of the world yet they must be allowed to claim our notice as a distinct and very singular race of men as the inhabitants of a region divided by its situation from all civilized countries who have formed their own manners and invented their own arts without the assistance of example boswell end of, footnote. End of section twenty one